You're listening to the Inner Light with Ellen podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Wyoming Deloy. I'm a coach in Portland, Oregon, who works with people across the US and occasionally the world. I help people to transition from where they are to where they want to be, removing limiting beliefs, barriers, and imposter syndrome along the way. On this show, I bring you conversations with leaders in wellness, spirituality, healing, mindfulness, and more. We also dive into themes around intuition, equity, racial justice, and what it means to be living here in the 21st century. I'm excited to bring you each episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And if you love the show, leave a five-star review so others can find us. If you want to learn more about my work and what I do, go to ellenwyomingdeloy.com. Thanks. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to another episode. Today, I am talking about leading in times of resistance. And I wanted to set the stage a little bit through this thought piece. Um, There are a couple of assumptions you should have in mind that I'm working with as I talk through the episode. Um, One of them being that I understand that many places that people work um, do not have a broad diversity of uh, in their leadership. Um, People may not be equally represented across all levels of an organization. And recruitment and retention of diverse hires is really a challenge and really difficult. So I want to have that be kind of a precept for um, the situation that I'm talking through. And also that the urgency for change and equity is, is real. And we can only see it as deeply as we see the resistance in society to this work. Um, Equity, diversity, and inclusion is, uh, at this point, uh, an acronym of, you know, it could be lumped into the same political trials that critical race theory is enduring. Um, There's an article in today's Washington Post about Texas A&M's diversity ban or their their ban on EDI, mandatory EDI programming, which included uh, just a one seminar series in their freshman orientation called diversity and belonging or belonging and inclusion, something like that. And they've had to take it out of the programming because of the, the, the laws being implemented in Texas. And so there, it is a culture war. It is a culture battle that is happening. And so um, I live in Oregon. It's definitely different than Texas, though I have to say I did, I did go to the University of Texas at Austin. I lived in, in Texas for a number of years. Um, and I, I understand that there's this resistance to the mandate this mandate to have to change because the way it is isn't right. And there are a lot of people who are resistant to that because they don't view themselves as bad people. They don't view themselves as racist. They don't view themselves as harmful or oppressive. But there's also a difficulty because the lack of recognition of privilege when you have always been um, in a ruling elite, and even if you don't believe you are a ruling elite, it's all right. If, If you still have the privilege of not being discriminated against because of the color of your skin, even if you are impoverished and you have other forms of discrimination, but not from your whiteness, is still a privilege. And that's really difficult to handle because it it feels conflicting to a person's experience. And so mandatory diversity trainings, which I agree are not all done well, and I will own that I have probably not done all of my work 
always well in the 10 years that I've been doing work on equity, diversity, and inclusion. But I still believe in it. And I still believe it to be important because we have to learn more about one another and be more open to broader views and perspectives about how things could be if we're to create any kind of, I don't want to say uniformity, but any kind of moving forward together, even if we are not all the same, an agreement to disagree, but to be civil and to be respectful and to be supportive of another ways of other ways of being in the world, other religion, other ethnicity, other other religious practice, other sexuality, other gender identification, anything, to have space to be our full selves. And that space does not yet exist. And so as I listened back to this before you will listen, you will listen to it soon, um, I, was, I was thinking about what I was saying and how it was landing. And I, I, I'm talking about it from a perspective of living in Oregon and where this work is happening in institutions and institutions are getting it wrong and in some ways getting it right. And there has to be conversation and a willingness to participate in the discomfort of growth in order for it to take place. And the way that my colleague Nathan Baptiste and I work together when we are engaged as a team with institutions to support their their implementation of equity, diversity, and inclusion is from a foundation of slowing down and of from mindfulness so that we are aware of our own reactions and responses prior to even doing the work so we can start to identify within ourselves what is alive and what is going on and what are we resisting. We all have resistances. I don't care where you're from. There are things that will activate in us that say, oh, this is going against what I believe about myself. I'm now in resistance to it. And as opposed to shutting that down, we encourage people to question it because it may be a protective mechanism that has been sent there to or placed there or inborn in us to be preservation, but to preserve what? Is it to preserve power? Is it to preserve identity? Is that even real? And so the way that we work is very slow and it's still faster than we want to work sometimes because we do have to meet deadlines or we do have, there is a timeline that the institution or organization wants to work within and that is fine, but we don't work in a, a typical fashion to to, to do this. It's not a typical training. It, I, we don't engage with institutions that just want to tick a box because we don't deliver that kind of equity work. We deliver work that builds relationships because that's the only way this is going to get done. And so as I talked today, um, this is from uh, private consulting that I'm doing with a one-on-one executive client who is leading this kind of change and meeting and meeting resistance in their work and wanting to understand how to better navigate their leadership so that they can be planting seeds and creating partnership around these opportunities as opposed to meeting the resistance that they meet when they start to bring up ideas around what does it look like for us to alter our hiring practices? How can we shift and actually follow through on the goals of our organization if half the team members are in resistance to it? Right. So there's there's the there's the policy that can be set, but the real the real work comes from the implementation. And change work, no matter what kind of change, is really hard because you will meet resistance. And so this episode today is talking about some of the tools to navigate the resistance 
inside of the context of equity, diversity, and inclusion, but it could be applied broadly to anything you're trying to develop change around. And so I just wanted to give you that heads up for this conversation. Um, it's it, it is an ongoing conversation as well. And um, I hope that you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much. Hi. I wanted to bring to you today a couple uh, points and conversations um, around executive coaching that I've been having. And in this uh, context, I'm working with leaders in organizations who are working to advance change, um, particularly centered around equity, diversity, and inclusion, which is everywhere these days, um, but it's also not easily done everywhere. And so I wanted to talk about it when you are a leader who has the vision, who has the experience, who has the understanding of the why, but the how is really challenging. Um, because as we know that people people are everywhere on their journey to understand how to be more inclusive, more welcoming, creating stronger senses of belonging in workplaces, and also centering services around everyone, not just those who have um, benefited from privilege for such a long time. This is particularly important. Um, and I, for where I work, I see being done the most in um, public sector institutions. So we're looking at government and um, educational, or at least public educational places. And I can't speak so much to the experience in more private institutions, corporations, large businesses, um, what those initiatives are. So I'll just be Frank and tell you who I'm working with. It's primarily public and public government or education. And um, so yeah, it can be hard. Everyone is in their own in their own space for it. But I think it's important to note that these are public spheres because the public is the public. People will look like me. I'm Asian American. People will look like your neighbors, will look like uh every just everyone, right? We're all there. Um, and leadership may not always reflect the public. Leadership and um uh, even the workers, maybe the administrators may not always reflect the public that they serve and the awareness around centering the needs of those, particularly those who have been historically oppressed and marginalized throughout history. So largely people of color um, can be women, can be people from different ability groups, um, gender, sexuality. If you're not fitting into a uh, dominant culture, white heteronormative culture, uh, it can be hard to know how to center the needs. And so I'm working with an executive right now who is working to implement change and running up against um, a lot of roadblocks, resistance, and interference. And I think that strategies for how to help bring people in is what's um, the biggest challenge for my client. Um, he does work in a place where people care, where people are motivated. They do want to do the right thing, but they have a hard time at times seeing how they are unconsciously complicit in a system that oppresses people 
And when they become aware of it, the personal mortification of it is so great that it sort of stops them in their tracks and impedes them to be moving forward and how to be a part of something positive because they're reconciling so much tension around their own failing or, and some people can call this white fragility. What I really think this is, is a shame block. Their shame rises so much that they feel targeted themselves and they can't move forward despite wanting to do the right thing. And so I'm not talking about the workplace where people are overtly racist. I'm talking about the workplace where people are overtly wanting to do the right thing, but then struggling with how to deconstruct the uh, internalized systems within themselves that they know to be able to open and learn how to do things differently. Because I mean, myself included, um, I was born in the 80s and I went to like a whole bunch of educational institutions. None of this was ever talked about until really deeply until I was in my 30s, right? So 10 years ago. And it it is a hard thing to deconstruct yourself as an adult and realize that the intention and the heart and the passion of how you did something for a long time is not always the most helpful or can be um can be construed as harmful talk about panic to know that you have harmed unintentionally right and i'll own, i'll share a brief story about this right so my mom is an immigrant and i very strongly identify with understanding an immigrant's journey and the hardships that they go through and the miscommunication or the judgment or the racism that that person can experience And when I was young, I was in my 20s, I was teaching um, students as a bilingual educator. So I I can speak Spanish and English. And I worked as an environmental science teacher working with largely um, a Latino population, Latinx population. And then um, later on, I taught ESL, English as a second language, at high school. And I was so rooted at that time, right? This would have been the early 2000s for me, at that time of assimilation of bringing everyone in to know how to operate as an American, how to be here and be successful. But my learning journey was so much through assimilation because it's what I was taught when I was growing up. My mom did not teach me Korean because she wanted me to be American. And she, uh, my dad is white. My dad is Polish American. And so um, when before the year 2000 on the census, you had only the option to take one race. And I remember filling out school forms. And my mom said, you check that you are white because your dad is white. You are an American. And it was so confusing to me because I was so clearly Asian to most people and to myself. And the family I grew up with as well was my my mom's Asian family. They had also immigrated. And so I spent a lot of time with my Korean relatives, though I couldn't speak Korean. Um, I could understand like a little bit. <clears throat> and so it was really interesting to me um, in the 2000s, I felt so passionate and I wanted people to fit in the way I had learned to fit in. But my fitting in meant dismissing a good part of myself so I could fit into a white dominant culture, even though I was always looked at as different. And people would ask me all the way until probably about 2010 when it stopped being (laughs) appropriate, I guess, um, to say, where are you from? What is your heritage? What's your culture? And then I would often get, it was usually someone maybe 10 or 15 years older than me. And then they would maybe 20 years older than me. And they would tell me a story about the Korean War or Vietnam, or they knew a lady from a place at some point in time. 
Uh, I lived in majority white cities uh, for most of my life. And so um, that was very common for me. And I was just used to it. I was like, well, I've assimilated. They're talking to me like I live here, but I'm a little different. And it was a it was a point of, of pride. And then there was a point in my life where I got deconstructed. And I realized how much of myself that I had um, hidden or put away to fit in. And I now bring that into my work. Uh, I guess getting into this work was sort of the beginning of my deconstructing and then re-evolving, right? To be a, a fuller version of myself. And at some point I'll have a podcast on what it means to be mixed race in America and in her forties. I don't know. I feel like that would be a good conversation. I haven't had enough of them, but, but for the work with this person that I'm working with right now, these people that I'm working with right now, um, it's really about how do we bring people into the conversation so that the people that they serve don't have to assimilate to be accepted, but they can be accepted as they are and how they are and not have someone trying to bend them toward a centering narrative or principle that we're all the same. The way in the 80s, my mom, in the best of her intentions, knew that if I assimilated, I would be more successful, right? Uh, and I could see the discrepancy between me having a white dad and some of my cousins having two Korean immigrant parents and how our paths and our access to things were different. And I noticed that my whole life growing up, you know, and I never really thought about it or deconstructed it until I was older. Um, but kind of moving back into to the now, regardless of who you are, when you are um, working to implement this kind of change you have to do it in a way that is approachable. And I know that there is a lot of impatience, especially on behalf of communities who are still not being served well, to get it over with and done already so we can be included as equitable partners in the conversation. But when the leaders and the administrators and, the, and those in charge not yet have that switched and have not hired enough people to be representative in those institutions, we have to proceed in a way that allows that participating group of people to also change and to, to do it not through force, which over my 10 years of doing equity work doesn't work. You can't force somebody into it. You can't cancel them into it. You can't shame them into it. You have to invite them into it and you have to invite them into it in slow ways. And so the person I'm working with is a person of color, a leader of color. He has an incredible background and history and story and is uh, powerful, if I could say one word about them. They lead with vigor. They have a lot of ideas and visions for how things can be, but I know that their vision is 10 to 15 years ahead of present time. Even if we accelerated, it's still five years out to be able to have a group rallied behind it because they're working within a system that is struggling to get everybody to agree that this is even important. And so in working with him, I'm talking about strategies to connect more deeply and to build relationships and fundamentally to slow down. Because if you're leading this kind of change I know we would love to grab the bull by its horns and just drag it through and break everything down and rebuild it. And maybe some places you can do that, but government and longstanding educational institutions won't withstand that. And they will probably crush that kind of leadership. And so what you need to do is plant seeds. And this is what we largely 
talked about today was the approach of going slow to go fast and building trust and relationships before you present all of the dogma that you have, all of the information that you have, all of the truth that you carry to a person who yet does not yet have a container that's capable of receiving it. You have to cultivate those containers that can receive this information and knowledge and wisdom, and then also create a conversation that helps both parties learn how to adapt and change together. And we talked about that through questioning today, um, because uh, an approach that works is listening, honestly. And it's asking people at the outset, what brings you here? Why are you here? What are your challenges? What do you wonder about? And building a relationship with these people that you need to cultivate allyship with, who will hopefully one day walk the work with you, they need space to be brought up to speed, not through just a mandatory training or a workshop that they go to, but through key relationships and trust building with the people who are leading the charge. And those leaders, often very visionary, very able to go fast and go hard, need to slow down and start to learn more from the other party of what they are working with, what they have to offer. It's almost like if you were a teacher and you went into a classroom and were like, here's what we're going to do. And like 13 students have really different backgrounds and go, we don't do things that way. You would want to slow down and get to know the students to meet them where they're at and then start to work to bring people together under a common framework. And the same is with the kind of leadership of an institution. You want to start to understand who you're working with and not just because it's their job to go with the with the plan, because people will come up with all kinds of resistance to defer the plan if it goes against who they believe they are. Like, I'm not racist. Why do I need to do things this way? I already do things just fine. It doesn't apply to me. I'm in finance. How do you even think that this could apply to me? I don't know why I have to be at this conversation. And what it really is, is going, what are your, what brings you here? Why are you here? And often in government, right, public servants, education, like service to education, it's a service role. We're providing something for the betterment of society or the functioning of cities. And we want to do well for everyone. And so understanding their individual motivations and then having a, the ability to build that relationship and cultivate the conversation that you can then share some of the ideas of, you know what I've noticed, this group of people we aren't reaching very well. What have you noticed your challenges are with them? Let's talk about it. And just listening and then hearing the ideas or this hiring process, this is what keeps happening to us. And we're not able to bring in members of the community who represent this area in a way that that would better our, our thinking and our the broadness of how we see and approach problems. What can we do about that, right? It's learning what other people's ideas are, getting their voices at the table through conversation rather than them having to be at the receiving end of a training to really help stimulate mutual ownership of the work beginning to evolve. And then patience. Patience for the mistakes that will happen, for the transgressions that will occur, and starting to build into place ways of how to make repair from those. So 
I'm talking really broadly and briefly over something that could be talked about over a sequence of multiple weeks. And so I think my question here is, I would really love to know, what do you struggle with? Um, if you are a leader in an organization or even not a leader in an organization and you want to see more change, um, advancing the goals of inclusion, belonging, equity, diversity, social justice, um, send me your questions or actually send me your scenarios. What are the specific things that are really hard for you that you see? And I can start to kind of build maybe a few episodes around answering what, what some of those things are and think through with you what would be an approach. Um, I don't claim to be the expert with all the answers, but I do have expertise in communication and around helping bring people in to be more adaptable to the changes that are constantly happening. Um, we would like things to become stable and static. And I wouldn't say static. We'd like to things to become more stable and steady. But if there's anything about the world that we live in, it's constantly shifting. And so finding ways that we can do it without being thrown off is always my goal. And it is where I have experience and expertise to support people through that, through an equity lens. So um, send your comments, share your thoughts, send me your challenges. And I would, I would love to just, yeah, uh, talk things through with you to help out. As, also, as usual, also, you can always go to my website, ellenwyomingdeloy.com, um, to schedule a free one-to-one -one consultation if you are interested in diving in deeper for work together. And um, you can learn more about my work there as well. Thank you so much, and I will see you next time. Thanks so much for tuning in today and listening to the show. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And if you love the show, leave a five-star review so others can find us. To learn more about my work and what I do, go to ellenwyomingdeloy.com. Thanks. See you next time.